Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Hello and welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Bill Cooksey and your regular host, Aaron Kendall, is not with us today. And in a few minutes, you'll understand why. Um, I am actually down in Orlando, Florida at ICAS. I am not going to try to describe what the acronym is, but it is the fishing industry trade show. It's like the shot show in hunting, and we've talked about that before. Uh, And everyone who's anyone in the fishing industry is here. But most importantly today here, we have Captain... Chris Whitman from Captains for Clean Water, and we have Jeff Mullins from the Everglades Foundation, and we're going to talk about Everglades restoration today. Guys, thanks for being on the show, and let's start with Chris. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm born and raised in Florida, South Florida. I grew up on a little island called Sanibel, and uh, been a fishing and hunting guide here for a little over 20 years now. Cool. Yeah. Good deal. And how'd you get into the Everglades work? You know, I guess seeing the degradation and collapse of the fishery that, you know, my way of life depended on, my business depended on, and ultimately uh, realizing that if something didn't change, the future of, of all of those things was, was not looking real, real bright. And so that kind of led uh, myself and fellow fishing guide Daniel Andrews to co-found the organization in 2016. Good deal. Jeff, how about you? Bill, thank you for, for having me. I'm uh, excited to be on the podcast talking about this important issue. I, uh, unlike Chris, uh, am a transplant to Florida. <laughs> Grew up coming down here, um, spend summers with my dad, though. So I always had an affinity for the state and the environment and the culture down here. Spent the last 25 years up in Washington, D.C., actually, doing advocacy work, communications work uh, in the hunting and fishing community. Uh, so super excited to be down here in Florida now for three and a half years now working on a critical issue important to the entirety of the state, the way of life, the economy, uh, et cetera, as it relates to Everglades restoration and really getting the water right. Good deal. It's always fun to get together with folks from other organizations who are also part of the hook and bullet world, mm-hmm. you know, cause we, we get enough of the other folks who all of us care about the same things, but it's fun cause we can actually talk about some of this stuff that our listeners here at the outdoors like to hear about. Um, one of the things we start off with every time, guys, is what have we been doing outdoors? So this time, let's start with you, Jeff. What have you been doing lately? Absolutely. Uh, not getting out as much as I'd like, but I have a two and a half year old and, and I know Chris can relate because he's got a young one as well. Uh, but getting him out as much as possible and exposed to the outdoors, uh, to nature is a top priority for me. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, over the 4th of July, my wife and I had him out on our little center console got out on the intercoastal and just cruised around a little bit. So that's the most recent thing, but I'm always walking down the street, hopping down in the canal, trying to pull out something out of the canal with my fly rod. That's one of the cool things about Florida. There are so many places yeah. close to wherever you are. You, you've got something close to you. You can just go do when you have 30 minutes to get outdoors. Absolutely. It's, it's different from a lot of, a lot of the country. But what about you, Chris? Um, I actually, I've been on the water a little bit recently, uh, filmed a TV show, fly fishing for uh, grand slam down in the keys, um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I do, I have a, as Jeff said, I have a, a eight month old baby boy and I've already taken him on his first dove hunt. 
and uh, he's been to turkey camp where I, where I guide for turkey hunts or Osceola's. And uh, yeah, I think he was about four months old, five months old. And I had him on a backpack, one of them little backpack baby carriers with a set of earmuffs on and <laughs> out dove hunting. So there you go. We're uh, breaking them in right. There you go. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well, I, this time of year up in Tennessee, I'm, if I'm outdoors, I'm probably bass fishing. That's kind of what we have going on right now. So been doing some of that and, and been doing a lot of traveling here lately. And I think all of us are glad to, that we're getting back out to see each other in real life again, because Absolutely. it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of stunk the last few years. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's jump right into the, the meat of this topic about Everglades restoration. Um, to begin, I want to know what Everglades restoration is. I mean, distill it down for listeners, but I think mm-hmm. also kind of what the problem is, as simple as you can make it, yeah. Jeff, what it, are we it, restoring? It's a simple, it's such a simple answer and a complicated answer at the same time. In, in essence, the, in a nutshell, it's, it's trying to get the water right. It's trying to get the water flowing um, and the benefits of that water to flow that flows back to the way it used to be, pre-drainage. Uh, so that the environment, the Everglades, the river of grass, uh, the, the communities on the coast, the communities uh, in south of the peninsula, Florida Bay, can all get back to how it used to be in terms of the environment and the water hydrating that landscape. Um, you, this affects millions of Floridians from a, a quality of life standpoint. It affects the environment, the habitat, the critters, uh, and it affects um, our way of life and the economy uh, of South Florida that essentially runs on water. So an essential part of that is uh, uh, functioning and healthy and flowing Everglades. Gotcha. And, and Chris, from a sportsman standpoint, I mean, you know, there, there's so many reasons. When, when I tell people I'm coming down here to work on some restoration stuff, and I usually leave it at that when I'm other places, and they, oh, pythons? No, not pythons. <laughs> uh, oh, that, that algae deal. I said, well, now we can talk more about that yeah. algae deal but from a sportsman's point of view what what is restoration you know, so as a sportsman one of the the key things that that your the habitats that that you depend on for your experience whether we're talking about the woods or the water is balance within that habitat and um, that is what everglades restoration is supposed to do you know before man put his hands on the waters of florida the water flowed from just south of, of Orlando here where we are today, all the way down through the Kissimmee River Valley to Lake Okeechobee would overflow Lake Okeechobee's southern rim and would feed the river of grass and ultimately would would make its way all the way to Florida Bay where it would balance those salinities. Man changed all that nearly 100 years ago and the water that once flowed and fed the Everglades, you know, the second largest national park in our country, uh, no longer does so. And uh, there was everything from from roads with Tamiami Trail um, acting as a, a hydrological barrier or a dam to uh, to to uh, an actual dam uh, uh, around the lake um, and canals that would then bleed that water out to the east and west coast. And uh, that system uh, worked for, you know, archaic industry back in the in the turn of the century here. Today's industry um, largely tourism driven mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and sportsmen and, and the sporting industry is, is no exception for that. There's, there's a reason why I cast the largest trade show in the fishing <laughs> industry in the world is right here in Florida. Um, we depend on balance within those ecosystems. And so Everglades restoration is intended to 
return that balance. It's returning the flow of that water south the way nature intended it so that we don't get those huge discharges to the east and west coast so that you don't have to hold Lake Okeechobee to unnatural levels like a reservoir um, and, and, and try to make it to where that habitat within the lake can thrive. To me as a sportsman, it means if we can fix this, we have better fishing, we have better hunting in a nutshell. Right. Yeah, we all like that. Well, I mean, in 2016, you obviously felt strong enough about this that you started Captains for Clean Water. Um, tell us a little bit about how that occurred. We touched on it, but but let's go a little bit deeper and talk about how it occurred and, and what you guys do. I mean, how you touch people and how you touch the resource. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, for sure, when we started, uh, we started out of anger. We were pissed off to see something we loved being lost. Um you know, largely due to politics and special interest influence. And we were pissed off and we decided that as sportsmen um, that cared about these places from Lake Okeechobee to the Everglades to Pine Island Sound where, where I live, um, we, can't, we can't sit and hope that somebody else will save this place. We have to be involved. And I think that's something that whether you're talking about Everglades restoration or Bristol Bay or any other issue in your backyard, that's 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 the reality of the situation. You you cannot hope that somebody else will save it. You you have to do whatever you can. And so it started with anger in the beginning, and I think that anger channeled towards um, effectiveness and realizing that if we were going to make an impact, the way we had to do that was to get other people like ourselves involved. Um, and the way that we would get them involved was through education and advocacy. And uh, we then had to make a case to the powers that be that, that can advance or delay Everglades restoration, that, um, that, that this is not just an issue about the things I care about, tarpon, snook, ducks, right. um, turkeys. This is uh, about our economy. And, and if you can make the connection of, of how an ecological issue has an economic impact, um, and, and you see it here again in this building, the, the hundreds of millions of dollars that are generated because of these resources, it shows that Everglades restoration isn't just important to save our fisheries and, and save the Everglades. It's important to save the economy. And if we don't do that, it's, it's going to cost us. So the way we look at it is this is, this is, it's the largest restoration project of its kind ever, ever undertaken in the world, but it's an investment in the future of those industries. And it's an investment in the future of our economy. Gotcha. And, and you know, a lot of people get hung up on its hunting and fishing licenses, but it is obviously so much more than just license sales. Yeah. Uh, and, and Jeff, obviously at the Everglades Foundation, y'all engage with a whole lot of different stakeholders and you have a lot on your plate. But kind of to y'all, where does sportsmen fit in the mix and, and how important is the sportsman voice in this? Uh, the sports, <clears throat> excuse me, the sportsman's voice is critical because it brings that diverse um, perspective of multiple interests to the table. Uh, you've got the lifestyle, the quality of life perspective. Uh, you've got that passion that, that comes to the forefront. Uh, as Chris just said, you've got the economic uh, arguments that can be strongly made by sportsmen and women uh, from a hunting, fishing, uh, boating perspective uh, and all that water means to, to those communities. So we engage with, uh, with Captains for Clean Water and a variety of other uh, sporting partners um, every day. And when it comes to advancing not only uh, the science of Everglades restoration, but certainly the advocacy of Everglades restoration as well. 
uh, Everglades Foundation was, was uh, begun 30 years ago by two fishing buddies who were fishing Florida Bay. Uh, and they saw firsthand the seagrass die-offs happening at that time. And they wanted to do something about it. So that's in our DNA gotcha. uh, is Florida Bay and two guys fishing and wanting to do, wanting to take action, not, not dissimilar to 2016, uh, a nice group called Captains for Clean Water gets formed. So uh, it's, it's great working with these uh, partners, uh, a lot of passionate folks. And I think that one thing that sets us apart from the rest of the community is we also bring to bear a really science-based, fact-driven component to, um, to the advocacy. Uh, we have a, a team of PhD scientists from water quality uh, scientists, hydrologists, you name it, ecologists. Uh, we're always studying and analyzing and doing uh, data modeling on how the water flows, optimizing where it needs to be and when, and then we can inform a public engagement and public policy process to advance Everglades restoration uh, in an effective way. Good deal. It, it's ne always neat when you hear it started with sportsmen. Yeah. You know, that obviously that means a lot to us. And we know sportsmen are always watching this stuff. And, and uh, just to see them engage is always, uh, it always makes me feel special. It makes me feel good to see our people engaging like that. Yeah, last week I was in New Orleans and we had a, a retreat with all of our golf staff. And a lot of those folks don't know anything about what we do in Florida. You know, others are in Florida, but they're not on Everglades work. And But most of them are Louisiana and a few Mississippi River. And they asked me to give 15 minutes on Everglades and what goes mm -hmm. on over here. And so I, I got to sit up there and, and explain to all these folks. It's so much like some of the things going on in Louisiana where we screwed up water flows. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. And trying to do good things. We thought we were doing good things in the early 20th century. And it turns out it wasn't so good. Uh, but I got to start with Shingle Creek and go all the way down. And then we talked about East and West and, and all the problems that, that that causes. So it was neat to, to get to talk to some of my coworkers who have never been engaged on this stuff. But uh, I wanted to talk about this a little bit. I've been working on a video that, that y'all know some about. And, and Keeley there at the foundation, we've talked about it a lot. And, and I got to do something I wish I had been able to do years ago when I first started doing this. I spent a week in South Florida and I flew in to Miami, drove to Okeechobee, down to the Keys, up to Jupiter, across to Everglades City, and then finally back across the Tamiani Trail to Miami to fly out. And in between, we went python hunting and we, went, we did all this other stuff and, and just to kind of bring it to the people. And getting on the ground and seeing these places i mean i've been around south florida but see it now after all i've learned working with you guys and, and reading and engaging over the years uh it, it was just a, a it was really incredible i mean it's such a diverse ecosystem and i don't think people have any idea what is what's between those beaches i mean it's there's a lot there mm -hmm. and um even even in chris you and i talk duck hunting a lot of times when we're together and, and Obviously, there's a big fishing components to Everglades restoration, but let's real quick, if you would, can you address maybe some of the duck hunting, how, how it impacts waterfowl? Sure. I mean, look, waterfowl, migratory birds, um, they depend, the key word there is water. And, uh, <laughs> they depend on healthy marshes and, and wetlands. And, you know, when you have the more uh, area that you have hydrated and wet, the more habitat there is for waterfowl. It's as simple as that. And when you have 
the central Everglades and the area between Lake Okeechobee and, and Everglades National Park, you know, go unnaturally dry uh, because we're holding water back for water supply or, you know, not having water being fed through it from previous wet seasons, that absolutely impacts waterfowl and impacts the migration of waterfowl. And, and Florida and South Florida to the Eastern Flyway is a critical, critical place mm-hmm. that those ducks depend on uh, between, you know, the, the North and, and the Caribbean. And so, um, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious to see that if, if you get the balance right and, and you can rehydrate the Everglades the way that Mother Nature, you know, had it designed, that the, the critters that depend on those places are going to thrive and they're going to rebound. And we've, we have seen the indications of that, whether it's from, uh, you know, wet El Nino years where a lot of water is put directly on that landscape. And then you see all these, you know, nesting birds and stuff, waterfowl that, that all of a sudden show back up or whether you see it through like Kissimmee river restoration, where they're restored part of that. And very, very quickly, the waterfowl and the migratory birds return to that area. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's critical to, to every component of life that depends on those ecosystems. And it, it, I'm going to transition into something uh, about a project here. And, and I think what you're going to say when I say what is the kind of the, the crucial project right now for Everglades, mm-hmm. uh, when I was on, on a call with, with some of your folks and, and they started talking about an STA component to the to what we're about to talk about. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, now we can talk duck hunting, man, because that's in, <laughs> I know in Florida, I don't know a lot, but I know STAs are a big dang deal for waterfowl. So uh, well, it's habitat. I mean, it, right. it does what it's supposed to do, but it's also great habitat. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so to you, what is the crucial centerpiece at this point in Everglades restoration? Well, I'll, I'll start by answering that question with uh, going back to your question at the top of we, we I think we answered it effectively of, uh, why and what Everglades restoration is, but the how I think is important to this question. Uh, we spent the better part of a century messing up the water, as you say, with development, with infrastructure on the ground. It's going to take water infrastructure now to be put on the ground to replicate that flow, to get the water flowing right. So it's, it's putting water infrastructure in place now in the form of reservoirs, pumps, canals, you name it that's going to replicate and move that water where and when it needs to be. So the crown jewel of Everglades restoration, particularly in the center and central Everglades of flowing that water south, when we talk about flowing water south, uh, the capacity that is needed is through the EAA Reservoir Project. That's the Everglades Agricultural Area Reservoir. That's south of Lake Okeechobee. It's a massive reservoir that's going to be constructed. I think it's some 16,000 acres, footprint the size of Manhattan, Adjacent to it is a stormwater treatment area, 6,500 acres, that's going to clean that water before it flows into the reservoir where it will be stored. And then eventually that capacity is then going to allow that water to be flowed south up to 120 billion gallons estimate annually capacity to flow water south through the central Everglades. We talked earlier about those communities on the east and west coast having those harmful discharges. That's going to alleviate that pressure on those communities as well. We're going to reduce those discharges by close to 55%. So tremendous crown jewel linchpin project of of Everglades restoration is that EAA reservoir project. Uh, We're working through the core of engineers right now 
Um, the, the dirt was turned last year on the STA by the state, the South Florida Water Management uh, Agency. Um, so progress is moving forward on that. Expect the completion of the STA probably end of next year. It might bleed into early 2024. We're, we're uh, continuing to monitor things there. Construction and contracts on the reservoir itself falls on the Corps of Engineers side. Um, some big slugs of money have started coming out of Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. towards that project. They're clearing out a few bureaucratic hurdles here recently. So we're going to start seeing major contracts be awarded on the reservoir project itself as soon as later this year. Uh, and the big one being the embankment project, $2.1 billion project. Uh, project contract awarded. That, that's a good chunk. That's a good chunk of change, <laughs> and that's going to be the bulk of it. That'll get awarded sometime late next year, I think. Um, if we if we look at the schedule right now, and if we can keep them on task, uh, end of 2029 is when the construction of the reservoir is supposed to be completed. While we're talking about projects, and I mean, this isn't necessarily project, but it's pro obviously project related in the end. One of the coolest things about restoration down here to me is it's not just a state going to the federal government okay mm -hmm. and we're going to talk in a few minutes about why other folks in other places should care about this but florida's taking part in this too in a big part Absolutely. so can you talk a little bit about the the how the state is involved and well it's a 50 50 partnership um uh, it's uh, the state is an equal partner um in uh, securing uh, the money and, and doing construction and, and uh, long-term operating, uh, operating all this infrastructure as restoration comes online. So uh, this has been going on, as I mentioned before, we spent the better part of a century messing this up. We've spent the better part of a, a couple decades now trying to fix it. Uh, when the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, uh, you may have heard the acronym SERP get mm -hmm. used a lot, when that was passed back in 2000, uh, it was supposed to be a 30-year project, and it's no doubt, Chris mentioned earlier, this is the largest undertaking of its kind ever. Um, so we're, we're in that, we've entered that third decade now, and, and you know, at the foundation uh, with captains, I know we want to keep the, the gas pedal down, making sure these projects stay on track, uh, accelerate them where we can, because we want this to be the final decade of Everglades Restoration. We want these projects to start coming online and these benefits to really start being uh, realized. I, I, I love the, the state taking part in it. Uh, and, and that resonates with a lot of people when I tell them that. I know when we've done fly-ins in the past and I'm calling a guy in California, he said, well, what's the state doing? And I tell him, okay, I'm all in then. Mm -hmm. you know, I can go talk to any politician and support this. Um, Chris, let, let's get back to you and, and, and to sportsmen. I, I think from other places, obviously folks in Florida, especially sportsmen, are going to have a, a good grasp of the impacted areas. Um, but for folks from elsewhere, I mean, where I'm from in Tennessee, everybody comes to Florida. You had a vacation to fish, to go to the beaches, that sort of thing. Me, it was always to fish, and the beach was kept the wife happy um, and the kids happy while I went fishing. But what are some of the, the specific places that have been so negatively impacted that people will recognize from other parts of the country? Uh, and, and kind of what has happened? What, what has been the change? And, and how's it been harmed? What's going to happen if it's not, if we don't get restoration? Um, so they can kind of get their own personal feel for it. Yeah, so if you, if you kind of start in the, in the middle or top of the system, looking at... Um, you know, looking at, let's look at Lake Okeechobee, you know, 730 square mile lake. 
that was when I was a kid was, you know, 30 years ago, uh, was phenomenal waterfowl hunting. Um, that lake, you know, being treated as a reservoir, uh, being, being held, you know, water held back during the dry season, um, resulting in very high water during the wet season, um, has destroyed a lot of the marsh in that lake that, that the waterfowl depended on. Like, you know, I got engaged to my wife on a, on a duck boat in Indian Prairie duck hunting. And, you know, it's a, a pretty special place to me. Um, to see the decline in Lake Okeechobee is, is something that will send ripple effects throughout the rest of the ecosystem. And it's, and it's sad. I mean, it's, it's one of the, it was one of the most sought after big bass lakes in the world. And it's still uh, one of the top, I hadn't thought is. of, especially as one it, of the top. It sure bass is, lakes. but it, but it, it absolutely isn't what it was. Right. And, and it can be again, if, if we can fix these things, but then going from there to the coast, if, if you look at, you know, the fly fishing world and Mosquito Lagoon is, is famous for that and Indian river and, and the East coast there, um, and the offshore fishery that the East coast generates that, that those inshore grounds are the nursery for those juvenile fish that, that ultimately make their way offshore. Um, on the West coast where I live, you know, Boca Grande, tarpon fishing capital of the world, uh, Sanibel Island, uh, Pine Island Sound, Matt Lachey. I mean, these are our fisheries, um, that people come year after year from all over the world to experience these places. Sanibel, you know, it's one of the, the, the top beaches in the world for, for people to come and go shelling. If you've got dead marine life and toxic water and you can't breathe, the, the people aren't coming in and visiting those areas. And then if you look, uh, you know, all the way farther south into Everglades National Park and Florida Bay, um, I mean, saltwater fly fishing was born in Florida Bay. Sure. It would not exist if it wasn't for that place. And, and, you know, when it started, it was the largest seagrass meadow, uh, you know, anywhere in, in the U S and I, I think one of the largest on the planet. And today it's, it's a, a shadow of what it once was once was in 2015, they lost, you know, 40,000 acres of seagrass in Florida Bay because it was hyper saline because that water that was needed to balance the salt levels, it wasn't there. So um, what it looks like if we don't complete Everglades restoration is, is something I don't even want to think about. Um, what I do want to think about is, is what it can look like if we do complete Everglades restoration, and we will. Um, I think that we've got more momentum today, and, and we understand the reality of, you know, as Jeff said, we want this to be the last decade. 20 years ago, when SERP was put into law, People pop champagne bottles and thought we're going to save the Everglades finally. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we see the reality of the situation 20 years later that we're nowhere near as close to the end as we should have been, or we thought we would have been. And so knowing that um, it's, it's just all that more important for people to stay vigilant and not get complacent and not think that, you know, because you won one of these battles in, in the, the war to save the Everglades, um, that it's over. There will be other battles. And until it is complete, um, we're, we're going to stay ready and we're going to keep growing and we're going to keep bringing more people on. And look, the Everglades, Florida Bay, the Keys, uh, you know, Lake Okeechobee, these are bucket list fisheries. Iconic. These are, mm -hmm. yeah, these are places that people dream about going to their entire life. And many of them 
will save up their whole life and hope to go fish in the Everglades one time uh, for tarpon or snook or whatever it is. And it's something that we might take somewhat for granted that it's in our backyard. But the fact of the matter is it, these are places that people all over the world, all over the country, whether you're out west or whether you're in the northeast, if you fish, if, if you hunt, you know, somewhere in Florida is, is absolutely on your bucket list. And, and we need all those people who either do come here and enjoy it or hope to come here and enjoy these places one day. We need all these people fighting along with us and, and make sure that we can complete Everglades restoration. And, uh, you know, we all think fishing down here, obviously, because that's what so many travel in to do. Um, but, but you point out waterfowl and people who are into collecting species, Florida has gotten a big name for itself. I mean, you come down here and you have fulvus and black bellies and blue-winged teal in perfect plumage. I mean, heck, that's a Mexico deal, you know, everywhere but South Florida. Um, uh, you get your model ducks here. I killed my first model duck here. I've hunted Louisiana for 35 years. And I've never shot a model down there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, come here, boom, model ducks. So, yeah, there, there's a lot more to the area, uh, to South Florida, than, than just fishing and, and it's good to point that out as well. Um, Jeff, we, we talked about, you know, it needs to happen, needs to happen now. What do the next 10 years look like at the rate we're going and the way you want it to look? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, as we touched on before, we're entering that third decade uh, of Everglades restoration. There's a lot of great momentum uh, to be excited about. Um, and that's momentum that we as a community and, and partners all working together have created. And it hasn't just happened uh, in a vacuum. We've, we've been working hard to create that momentum, but you've got projects now being funded in large chunks. You've got great support uh, in funding and in policy from the state side. Uh, you've got great and increasing support and funding from the federal side that are going to now uh, construction uh, of those projects. So it's as we move from the stage early on in that, in that three decade time continuum of acquiring land, doing planning and, and thinking big thoughts, we're now putting moving dirt and putting uh, construction into action. So uh, really, again, uh, keeping uh, the eyes on the prize, keeping the funding streams going and making sure that all this construction uh, stays on track and where we can uh, accelerate it uh, with better policies or less bureaucracy or more funding, uh, we wanna do that as well. Let, let's talk about something that, that's maybe kind of a difficult topic, but it's one that I think is really important. Uh, and, and I see it in my work here and in other places. And, you know, there are a lot of stakeholder groups, um, even in the sportsman side of things, whether it's waterfowl hunters, or freshwater fishermen, inshore fishermen, offshore fishermen. Uh, and, and I know y'all have other with ag and, and cities and towns and uh, business people and everyone else. You, you have to listen to those different stakeholders and engage them. And not everybody agrees, you know, so, so how do you guys go about kind of taking all that into account? And, and it's just hard sometimes, but how do, how do y'all take that into account and, and try to move forward? And I know that's a tough one. It, it is a tough one. It's, it's also uh, kind of par for the course when it comes to engaging in any policy and advocacy uh, endeavor. So, um, we have smart, uh, passionate folks on staff who uh, not only cultivate those relationships with stakeholders and, and try to bring folks together around uh, consensus and solution-oriented approaches. I think I always like to say the Everglades Foundation is a forward-thinking 
and forward-leaning organizations. So we're gonna we're gonna lean in on some aggressive, uh, uh, you know, approaches. But it's always gonna be based on science. It's always gonna be based on what's the best for the Everglades and restoring that that water flow. And then we can we can work on partnering up and collaborating and educating uh, people and bringing people together. That's a good answer. Well, thank you. <laughs> to the tough question. Uh, and, and Chris, uh, with you, I, I know I see it too, and you being in Florida probably more so than me. Um, how can sportsmen do better working with each other on this? You know, I think the key to uh, sportsmen, whether you're talking about, you know, whether, whether we identify, you know, more towards waterfowl hunters or, or saltwater fishermen or bass fishermen, whatever is, is the key there is, is being educated. Everglades restoration is scientifically backed and supported plan. And so being educated on what that plan is and what it means and what it does is the key because the reality of the situation is the Everglades restoration and the, and the future in uh, that, that change that will happen will, will benefit the masses. It will benefit habitat. It will, it will benefit us all. And the, the effort to maintain the status quo is the benefit of special interests. And one of the tactics to, to maintain that, it, the reality of it is it's misinformation. It's misinformation and it's intended to confuse or divide. Um, it's, it's something that is a proven tactic that has been employed everywhere, know, everywhere throughout it, time. Exactly. And so the only way to effectively com combat misinformation that is that really the result of that is to keep people from becoming engaged. If, if you're confused on something or you don't quite understand it, then chances are you're not going to take action on it. And without the people that are affected by these places taking action, we're going to see them stall. And so the only way that you combat misinformation and, and those, those fears is, is to be educated. And so I think um, no matter what, it's the information is there. There's a tremendous amount of information on Everglades Foundation's website. There's a tremendous amount of information on Captains for Clean Water's website. There's a tremendous amount of information at the Army Corps, the Water Management District. Um, countless universities have weighed in. So it, the, the important part is educate yourself because by doing so, you're going to see through the BS. And, and if you can do that, you're more likely to, to become part of the solution. Gotcha. And I, you know, I started years ago in, in Louisiana. I, I would tell people when they're, they have a strong disagreement, so, okay, let's find the places we agree. And it's amazing often how many places will agree, but then there's one thing, let's push that aside and, and work where we agree. And then we'll try to get together down the road on that. So, yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, one of the things we've talked about are, are largely infrastructure project yeah. based, but the other part of Everglades restoration is, is the management of that water mm -hmm. through those structures. And uh, we we've had a process now that we're in the third year of LOSOM. It's the Lake Okeechobee system operating manual. And that's the management and operations of water through the existing infrastructure and, and then through future infrastructures. And I think something that's important to see is like with LOSOM, the sportsman's community, you know, organization, the Everglades, many, many, many organizations that are involved in, in Everglades restoration ultimately were, you know, looking at what's the best 
um, what's the best option for this change in management for everybody? Where maybe it's it's not great for anyone, but it's shared adversity to where instead of us getting hit with a baseball bat every mm-hmm. couple of years on the coast, we're getting hit with a broomstick instead. Mm-hmm. And we're not seeking perfection at the cost of, of water supply, right? We're looking for compromise and we're looking for, you know, in this case, a, a 30 plus percent reduction in those discharges through that management. I think that the important thing there is we're just asking to not be hurt as much. And the other side of that water supply in the sugar industry is the one who drives that. They're looking for perfection. They're looking for perfect irrigation, perfect water supply for perfect crop yield for a one in 80 year drought scenario. And that's not, that's not starting negotiation from two equal Mm. points. We're not asking for perfection. We're just asking for compromise. And, and I think it's important for, every stakeholder, including the industrial sugar industry, to recognize that and and, and be willing to make those comp- compromises. There's no such thing as perfection in this world for any of us. So, yeah, I, I'm with you there. Um, you know, so, so much of my work in the past uh, with y'all has been on a national basis. You know, I'm trying to get folk, sportsmen nationally engaged and get them to talk to their, their representatives about this issue. And that's pretty easy because everybody loves South Florida and you tell them there's something wrong and they want to help fix it. So, but that's an, so I've worked with a really easy stakeholder group a lot. So I've, I've actually learned a lot as I've engaged more in Florida. Um, but, but let's, let's begin on a national basis and then let's drill down to Florida. I mean, this has been a bipartisan issue. I think it really has been all along if I'm not mistaken. And it really is now mm-hmm. both nationally and here locally. And I know when I'm in DC, what's the Florida delegation say? They're all with us. Okay, we're good then, you know, so it makes it pretty easy. So y'all done good work down here, obviously. What can sportsmen on a national basis do to help? Well, I'll, I'll touch on something that really resonated with me that Chris said earlier. You know, this is, this is America's Everglades. It's not just Florida's Everglades. It's America's Everglades. Places down here are bucket list places for sportsmen. Uh, they're aspirational places that you want to come and and experience. And so Everglades Restoration is going to uh, keep those places healthy and around and and uh, available for future generations if we do this right. And we will, as Chris said. Um, you're absolutely right, Bill. Uh, the Florida delegation has been lockstep on Everglades Restoration. This is a nonpartisan issue in, in, when it comes to the the congressional delegation, Republican, Democrat alike, they're all on board with you know, full funding. Let's let's keep charging up that hill and let's get this done. Um, so, in terms of sportsmen staying engaged, I, you know, Chris answered it already. It's it's staying informed, being open to being educated, uh, and and finding out the answers when maybe there's disinformation out there, and really just remaining engaged and and following groups like captains following groups like nwf following groups like the everglades foundation and and being open to receiving information and and if something's happening being willing to take action when when needed as well and carry that voice well you engage on this all the time at the state level what can sportsmen do what should they be doing i mean first and foremost again educate yourself on these issues and then and then involve yourself in it and i think that um, something that is unique about sportsmen is, is we have connections to like-minded people and other people all across this country. 
like ourselves, right? And, you know, many of our friends, you know, I'm, I'm in the Yeti booth this week and, and many of those guys, you know, are from Texas and Colorado and Montana and everybody, uh, this is important to everybody and, and it's going to take everybody to save the Everglades. You know, we mentioned that it's a, it, it is a partnership between the state of Florida and the federal government and we have to keep that momentum. And, and if, if either one of those stalls, it's going to affect progress. And so I think realizing that as sportsmen, we can advocate for these places that are in our backyard, but we can also advocate for others to, to help save those places as well. Um, you know, one of the things we say with, with Everglades restoration is that it's, it's going to take more than just the people in Florida to save the Everglades. It's going to take everybody across the country. You know, we, we did kind of a joint campaign around, uh, pebble mine in Bristol Bay yep. and the Everglades. And the whole point of that campaign was that the future of Bristol Bay, you know, on one corner of the continent and the future of the Everglades on the opposite corner of the continent, the fu their futures depended on everyone in between them to, to be active and to advocate for their, for either their for protection or for their restoration. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, um, Nobody knows these places better than sportsmen. And so sportsmen should be the ones at the front of that spear leading that charge because we know it intimately better than anyone else. We do not know the Everglades or, or the, these workings as something in a briefing binder and maps and in a summary. We know them by the way the currents flow and, and by the way that the animals that use them, and we know them better than anybody else. So we should be at the absolute front of the fight to save them. If you're not from a part of the country where there's a problem that needs work, I don't know what that spot is, and I, I wish you'd contact me because, I mean, where I'm from, massive uh, record floods over the last several years now, 10 years, uh, Asian carp, and all of these different issues are killing our fisheries. And, and obviously it's not as critical as far as human impacts is what you have going on here, or what they have down in the Mississippi River Delta. I mean, these are lives that will be changed forever if something doesn't happen. But it's still, a, we, I say, we have a vanishing paradise even where I'm from. And y'all mm -hmm. certainly have one down here if we don't keep this momentum going. Um, what, uh, we'll be closing out in a few minutes, but I, I just, I feel like there's a hole here somewhere. What do we miss guys that, that you want people to know about? I would just say, um, one, do not underestimate the power of the individual voice. It is the most important component of change. It is it, people and the collective voices together advocating for something is the most powerful tool we have to change, whether we're talking about Everglades restoration or any other issue across the country, whether it's human rights, whether it's habitat, it doesn't matter what it is. Collective voices is the most powerful uh, mechanism for change. And I think, you know, speaking from experience, a lot of times people fail to engage on things because they have a lot of other stressors or responsibilities mm -hmm. in their normal everyday life. And they don't think that their one voice will, will be the catalyst for change. And so they, they simply, I'm not going to do it because I've, I've got so much on my plate. And that way of thinking will result in failure. But the, the 
I think everybody should realize how important every single individual voice is. Um, we saw that with a recent bill at the state level and with Senate Bill 2508, the collective voice of people, not just in Florida, but around the country saying this is a bad bill. The language in this bill can, can quite literally backpedal much of the progress that we've made. And, and that collective voice resulted in the, the changing of that bill and ultimately in the vetoing of that bill. Um, that I think is, is something that whether we're talking about big national issues like Everglades restoration, or whether you're talking about something in your own hometown at a county or municipal level, um, your voice is needed and, and you have a, a responsibility to use your voice if you are a user of those resources. And I, I think that's probably one of the, the main things. Um, and like I said, I speak from experience. I was a fishing guide for, for 16 plus years. My entire life revolved around the water since I was born and I wasn't involved. And right. So, um, you know, the, the way I see it is the faster we can make people realize that their voice is needed and, and that army of voices getting stronger is what's going to be the most effective thing to see change, the, the faster we'll see progress. And, and an email doesn't cost a dime. I mean, you, right. you can get involved as simple as sending three sentences to your congressman. Absolutely. And, and we talk about this on the show a lot because, you know, we do address a lot of these issues and there are people sitting in those offices. No, your one email is probably not going to get you a phone call directly from your Senator. It's that's not the way it works because they're getting thousands, but they are sitting there logging those in and saying this person from Tennessee supports Everglades restoration and funding Everglades restoration. And that makes a difference. They will get those reports and they have people, that's what they watch are the natural resource stuff. And they forward that to him and say, hey, you're actually getting a lot of people from this state saying this is important to them. And it, it does make a difference. Uh, Jeff, what about you? What from, from the foundation end, what have we not covered? I, I think we've, we've hit all the, the great points to make. I would just reiterate uh, again, picking up on a theme Chris was touching on about the, the voice of the individual, reiterating the fact that the Everglades touches so many people that perhaps aren't aware that it, it has an impact directly on their lives, whether it be uh, a drinking water uh, connection, a quality of life connection uh, to, the, to the land and to the habitat from an enjoyment, uh, hunting and fishing perspective, boating perspective. Uh, it's certainly a driver of our 21st century economy that runs on clean water uh, and, and a healthy Everglades is connect the, the connective tissue of all that. And so there's a lot of folks out there that don't fully realize that. So the more we can do as groups to make that awareness resonate with people, um, I think that's part of the work we have ahead of us. Gotcha. Good stuff. All right. We always close out with a few words of wisdom from everyone on the podcast. Chris, let's start with you. Um, I would say regardless of what your motivation or driver to get involved in issues like Everglades restoration, whether it's selfish, right? whether you want better fishing for yourself, whether you want, you know, improved habitat or to keep, to keep what, what is there, um, or whether it's, you know, whether it's a reality of, this is something that, you know, I may not see the fruits of it in my lifetime, but the next generation, you know, I just had a baby last, last, uh, November. My wife did. Thank God. <laughs> I, I, I was going to ask for <laughs> clarification. Thank God I didn't have to go through that. Um, but, uh, 
but no, you know, I've, I've an eight month old son and to me, success is if he can experience the things that mean so much to me. Mm-hmm. And if, if we can do that, that's success. Whether ever, whether I ever get to go back and experience the things I experienced as a kid or the places I experienced as a kid in the state that they were in, if we can get it to where one day he can, or maybe his kids can, that is success. And so I think um, it's just important to like, regardless of what your motivation is to be involved, it doesn't matter. Just, just get involved and be involved. And I I think the most important step to that is, is to educate yourself and, and, you know, there's plenty of resources out there to do so. And I think a part of that um, is about educating the next generation as well. We're working hard at this for 20 plus years now. This will happen. Uh, it change is happening. Progress is being made. Uh, so we're going to get there, but we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past either. So part of our charge for the next generation is to share with them how hard this was and why it's important so that we don't repeat it. Gotcha. That, that's good stuff. And I, I talk on here, Chris and I have today a lot about using our voice and, and I'm going to end with just, I want to ask people to really consider, even if on a local level, whatever in your state, some of the conservation issues that are there, study up on them a little bit, spend 10 minutes a month, look online, study up and write an email. And from that, Grow your, grow your voice because it does matter and you can make a difference. Um, guys, I want to thank you for being here. I've enjoyed it. We're going to go out and look at a bunch of fishing gear, I guess, now. And, Absolutely. Uh, I, I want to see the latest electronics. That stuff's getting crazy. But uh, So thanks for being here. And, and, folks, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And we'll talk to you next time on NWF Outdoors. We are NWF Outdoors. <laughs>